Let me explain where we are in terms of our teaching. We have a few families that are considering membership for our church. And you, many of you, come from different backgrounds. Some of you grew up in a Presbyterian or Reformed church, or some of you are coming from Baptistic background. So I think it is a good time for us as a church to consider infant baptism. And some of you are considering that for your children. And it is, it is not an easy thing to discuss that. It requires much study from my perspective. And I have to be clear. And you also have to have some background. And we have to be diligent in searching the scriptures and and there are good arguments on both sides and we cannot I cannot talk about this for a long time uh, like whole year so just just tell you the truth I've been stressed out for past couple of months because I've been studying this on the side and how am I going to talk about this and Infant baptism really is, like I said, is a forced potato. You pull that, there are multiple potatoes waiting, and tip of an iceberg on another, under which you will see a ma- massive theology under it. So you cannot simply talk about infant baptism in isolation from the rest of it. But it is also good for you to know because you are attending a church that stands in that tradition, Presbyterian tradition. So I may not be able to answer all of your questions, and I don't think anybody can. But as a pastor of this church, what I could do is to give you some of the fundamental beliefs that we inherit as a church, many of the, the arguments that I will just lay them in front of you and I could only pray that you could take them in. So pray for me and pray for you yourselves and pray for young children as well. First uh, section, the passage that I've given you is the passage that we have considered for past couple of weeks talking about the Lord's Supper. But I am going to use that uh, as a jumping board to get into the topic of the infant baptism. If you would recall, and you could look at it, verse 24 and verse 25, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for what purpose? Twice he says, do this in remembrance of me. Twice. So it is simple. Christ gave that Sacrament to us for us to remember Him. Simple as that. But today, I want you to shift your focus from you remembering to God remembering you. That's where I want to 
begin our discussions on the topic of infant baptism. When you hear the words, do this in remembrance of me, what do you do? You immediately set out to remember him. Oh, how can I remember? And if you could put yourself in my position, what would you say to the congregation? I probably was thinking about it a few weeks ago, and what are the ways in which my people could remember Christ throughout the week? Because obviously Christ is not saying, remember me once in a while when you celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is not the case. It is given for that purpose to help us to do that. So I would say, you know, midweek, probably, I don't know if you could set up some time for Bible reading or prayer or something like that. So what I find myself doing is focusing on me trying to remember Christ, which is really a right thing to do. But again, like I said, today, what I want to accomplish through this sermon is that, do that, but it is really a matter of emphasis or priority. Before you think about how can I remember Christ, today, why don't we think about God remembering us first. It really is the same thing. We remembering Christ or Him remembering us, but it is not one-to-one in correspondence. It is more like God remembering us is the foundation. And us remembering Him is the house that is built upon what God has done. Because at the heart of the debate or the matter of infant baptism is the understanding or misunderstanding of what the sacraments are. And I am going to explain that. Now, if you would remember, in our own confession, it does not start the discussion with the Lord's Supper of Baptism, but it begins with the chapter of the sacraments in 27th chapter. And I have given you a couple of Sundays on that definition, and let me read that first sentence again. How we, that church that subscribes to the Westminster Confession, defines the sacrament, what sacraments are. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of what? Of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God. Right. So in order for us to understand what the signs are, the sacraments are, we have to understand it in the context of the covenant or the covenant of grace. If you would ask me, what is Reformed theology? What what distinguishes us, this church, from other churches? Then I would probably say our Reformed theology is covenant theology, and Westminster Confession of Faith is really a statement on the covenant theology. First, confession that explicitly states, explains, and defends the, what is known as the covenant theology. 
So, listen for a few minutes for what the covenant of grace is. When you open up your Bible and start reading from Genesis 1 and keep reading from the Old Testament, you will find that God will make, God makes successive covenants in human history. Is it the only way to organize and see and interpret the Bible? No. That is why many people resent to that idea. How can you have a single point, covenant, making the focal point of how to see and summarize the entire scriptures, the Bible itself. I understand. But you will also recognize that whenever God made covenants in the Old Testament, those covenants come when God makes very important announcements regarding His plan of salvation. Everybody has to recognize that. So let me give you what the covenant of grace and how we should be thinking about that is. This, once again, it's a big topic. But covenant of works was made with Adam, he failed. So covenant of grace and under which we recognize few covenants that God had made with these people. Covenant that God made with Noah. Covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant that God made with Moses and the Israelites. The covenant that God made with King David. And the last one, the covenant that God made with Christ. But that undergoes the whole thing. But each and every time that God made those covenants, what you will also recognize is that the God's plan of salvation is growing. When God calls Abraham out of Ur and then and go to the land that I will show you, and God makes covenant with Abraham, that covenant is really made with a single person and his family. But when you come to Moses, that God makes his covenant with Moses, what happens? It now grew from a single family to the Israelites, the whole people. When God makes his covenant now with David, that covenant is now in the kingdom terms. So it is successive, and the analogy that we usually use is the seed. Seed is not, obviously, it doesn't look like a tree, but in substance, it is the same. So covenant theology, the main strength of covenant theology, us, is that we see one unified way of salvation throughout the scriptures. That's the strength of covenant theology. If you go to Dallas Seminary and ask, how were people saved under Moses? They will say, God told them to obey the law, and if you obey the law, then you'll be saved. So it is a different way of salvation, they will say. And so many graduates of those schools, and we call them dispensationalists because they see these covenants in such a 
disconnected way. So they would say the way of salvation back in the Moses time was different from, let's say, back in the time of uh, in the garden. It is now different from New Testament church. So they would assign different kind of way of salvation through these epochs, different stages of salvation. But for us, the strength of unifying the Bible under the theme of the covenant of grace, what we would say is, let's say, how were the people in Moses' time were saved? By works? No. For us, it is but a manifestation of covenant of grace. So it is still the same way by placing one's faith in coming Christ. So you see, I'm trying to explain, is there strength and weaknesses? Yes, in both sides. But us, we are the heirs of that tradition and covenant theology. And covenant theology really is nothing but really tracing how God made covenants with his people. And if I could put it this way, God communicates his saving grace through the successive covenants that he made with the following people. And they are the representatives of certain units. So when you look at those covenants and view, but we will put under the theme of the covenant of grace, you will notice patterns. So before we talk about New Testament sacrament, which happens all the way in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and even before we talk about infant baptism under the heading of baptism in general, we have to begin all the way from the beginning because there's continuity. And when you see that there are recurring themes in those covenants, and I'm just quoting uh, uh, Bob Letham, and he says this, Whatever one's conclusions, God's covenants consist of, listen to this, of promises he makes, mediation he provides through Christ, obligations to which his people are committed, and sacraments that sign and seal the covenant. The last one I and I'm going to talk about. I cannot talk about everything, but when you examine those earlier covenants that God made with these people, after God makes covenant, God usually gives a visible sign to, as a sign to point to the terms of the covenant and to seal the covenant. So when you see that pattern, then you will understand why from our perspective we confer the sign of the covenant to the infants. So you cannot begin in the New Testament. You cannot begin with infant baptism and start arguing from there. But you have to recognize there is a recurring pattern that you will see from the Bible itself that how God dealt with His people throughout generations. So let me tell you From the Old Testament, those covenant signs that God gave to His people, they were not so much about proof of your faith, though certainly it is required, but first and foremost, in those signs you will recognize, in covenant signs, 
It will point first and foremost to God and God's promises first. Once again, it is not a two different thing, but matter of emphasis. And you and I, I hope, could recognize what comes first. Like I said in the beginning, it is not so much about my faith. But before you talk about my faith, we have to talk about God's objective revelation, promises, and His covenant faithfulness. So, Derek Thomas says regarding the sacraments, The sacraments seal the promises of the gospel rather than our responsive faith in the gospel. I know it sounds the same, but it is not. Derek Thomas is a Presbyterian minister and says the sacraments for us, for us, sacraments, what does it do? The sacraments seal the promise of the gospel, that is, emphasis on the objective side, rather than our responsive faith in the gospel. Oh yes, it is required. But as next or secondary to the first objective promise of the gospel, gospel in the seed form, which was the same throughout generations. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson, and this is from the three views of the baptism. And this really changed my, really not changed, but strengthened the infant baptism arguments because he was the first one, at least for me, to show me Baptistic view and Presbyterian view, they are different because they are looking at the sacraments from two different perspectives. That's why they are really fighting, unless you come to the definition first. So listen to him. He quotes statement by the Southern Baptist Convention adopted in 2000. For them, for the Baptist brethren and sisters there, Christian baptism, what does it, what, what, what is Christian baptism for the Baptists? Christian baptism is an act of obedience symbolizing believers' faith. For Baptists, baptism, the definition of baptism sacrament is a testimony to his faith, presence of my faith. Obviously, that has to be there to be saved. But first and foremost, they would say, it is a sign for my faith faith in Christ. But what about us? How do we look at it? We have said it, that it is the covenant sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And Ferguson explains this. For Baptists, baptism is a sign of what the believer has done in response to Christ. But for us, for Pedro Baptists, baptism is first a sign of what Christ has done and all that is in him to be received in faith. It sounds the same. But there are two different views or the emphasis through which you see what the baptism is. For baptism it is the presence of my faith. That's why you are baptized. So their argument is, how can you confer the sign before the presence of faith in infants? According to their definition, we cannot tell whether the baby has faith or not. So you cannot assign the covenant sign first when there is no proof of that presence of faith in the infants. Make sense? But for us, 
That's not what the signs, covenant signs were designed to do first and foremost. So we'll, we'll get there. But I just want you to at this point recognize that there, there are some fundamental differences in view. But again, if you see God's objective and consistent pattern in dealing with His people throughout the redemptive history, then it will make better sense for you. And last two sacraments given by Christ, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, they are also the covenant sign. So you have to stop from the beginning. And what I want to do today for the remainder of our time is to look at Genesis 9. So if you would turn there with, with the printed text, this is a sample. Today I cannot deal with all the covenants. But I just want you to see this will happen over and over again as God amplifies the same essential gospel promise that God has given in the garden, the seed of woman. But God will wait a long time before it is fully accomplished. But through those successive stages, important stages, God makes covenants. And what are some of the themes that you could find? That's, that's what I want to do. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 18. This is where you will encounter the term covenant for the first time in the Bible. Though we recognize covenant works that God made with Adam, who is the representative of humanity, there is no explicit word covenant that is mentioned in Genesis 1 through 3. But very first word occurs in 6.18. And look with me. This is very important that you see that. This is after, uh, this is before the flood, and God makes this covenant with whom? Noah. But I will establish who? It is not Noah. In covenant making, you have to recognize it is God seeking men. Men do not seek God. But God comes first, in and of itself. That's grace, isn't it? God could have sat up there and, and not come, but God comes to men. And God makes God, I will establish my covenant with you, singular, and you shall enter the ark. That's Noah. But listen to what God says. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Why? Why? Immediately your question is, what did they do? And we immediately think about personal salvation that we put our faith in Christ Jesus. But you have to understand, those times, it was in a very primitive situation. So whatever that was sufficient for that time, the faith in the coming Messiah was sufficient at the time. That's what we recognize. But don't you see here already in the first covenant making, what do you see? Monergistic. God comes. God makes the covenant with Noah. He was a righteous man, but because of his righteousness, who benefits? Entire family. And you could say, objection. God, stop. You could save Noah because he was a righteous man, but what these, after all, Ham would be cursed later on, as you know. But here, at least, what can you notice? You have to notice God's intention 
to deal with families in his covenant relationships. You have to recognize. If you read from Genesis 6 through 9, that the flood narrative, you will see over and over again God talks about his family. Why? In our modern perspective, it does not make sense. We'd have to think about your faith, your faith, your faith. So God has to examine each one, each one, and, and, and give them a test. If they pass, put them in the ark, put them into the ark. But here, you see already God deals with family unit. Once again, I'm not answering all the questions. But the pattern, simply a pattern. Palmer Robertson, that I've talked about many times when we did the study on, on, in the Psalms, his book um, is the standard textbook for many Reformed seminaries. And dealing with Noah's Covenant, he comments in this way, and I don't think any one of us in Reformed perspective will condemn this statement. The righteousness of the single head of the family serves as the basis for including the whole of his descendants in the ark. Because Noah is righteous, his entire family experiences deliverance from the flood. Let's just leave it there. And go to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, 1, verse 1. This is after the flood. Everything has been destroyed. This is really a new creation. Once again, I take it from the Word of God to be that it was universal. And you understand the flood debates, whether it was localized, whether it was universal. You could read all kinds of stuff. To me, it is obvious from the text that every living, breathing thing died. So after that entire destruction of the entire living being on earth, probably except for fish, obviously, they come out and this is what God says. God blessed Noah and his sons. Why sons? You see, again, family unit. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have you heard about that somewhere in the creation account? So in Genesis 9, what really is happening from God's perspective? I want to start a new. New race, new family. And once again, God doesn't say, Noah, you are righteous, so I'm just addressing you. All of your children, your sons and your, uh, the wives, you guys need, really need to learn from him. He, at this point, he doesn't do that. He blesses Noah, his sons, and said to them as a family unit that I want you to simply recognize. That's what God did. And look at verse 7 and following, and I'm going to make a few comments as we go through these verses. And as for you, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God is God of life. God loves life, not death. So there's a renewal and recreation motif here in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah, and once again to whom? To his sons with him, saying, this is post-flood. Uh, and now, behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. God's covenant is not only in a family unit, but for the descendants. You will find that as a refrain over and over again. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you. What? 
God is making uh, his covenant with beasts. That's exactly what God is doing here. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Verse 11, here's the promise. Content. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Here is the promise. When you see the covenants, in each covenant you will find promises. God usually deals with the covenant head, family, immediate family, and their descendants. And there's promise, and there's covenant curse sometimes. But here, what's the promise? God says, I will never again destroy the earth with flood. That's the promise. So that is why in our standard text, this covenant with Noah, which is really is the first covenant that we see in the Bible, and the nickname for this is covenant of preservation. So people argue, because there is no talk about faith, and God makes covenant with even animals, that, that what does that mean? So people sometimes say this is non-redemptive covenant, so people start usually with covenant that God made with Abraham. But I will argue this is really a redemptive in a sense that God simply at this point already destroyed the earth. And there's already a new beginning. God has just redeemed a new first family, Noah's family. So now what God does is God promises that I will preserve the earth so that on this earth the prince of peace, my son, the seed of woman will come. So this Noahic covenant sets the stage or guarantees the coming of Messiah. You see, without Noah's this covenant with Noah, down the road, what happens when God's chosen people sin? God could have said, you know, I'm going to destroy them again. I've, did it, I've done, what, done it once, I'm going to do it again. But what guarantees coming of Messiah Christ is that God in the early stage, as soon as they step outside of this ark, God said, you know what? I am not going to destroy you. That was the promise. Now, we come to covenant sign. Look at verse 12. After that promise, what does he do? God gives a sign, visible covenant sign. After the promise, covenant sign doesn't come first. Circumcision doesn't come first. Sabbath keeping does not come first. It's not conditional. God saves these men first and then gives them promises and warnings and then signs are given to remember what? And you will find it out here. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant. In the Bible, covenant sign. Sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. And here it is, the visible sign, the visual aid. I set my bow in the cloud. Not rainbow, but bow in the cloud. And it shall be, what? For a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen. That's rainbow. Bow will be seen in the cloud. Look at verse 15. 
Through that covenant sign, the first priority and the emphasis lies with God. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it, second time he says, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, the final verse. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What does the sign do in this Noahic covenant? It is not first and foremost about Noah. Noah cannot contribute to the covenant. But it is God and His promises. And even, does God forget? Does God forget about His terms? That's why He says, when I see it, I will remember my covenant a few times. Obviously not. That's not what God is saying. Oh, I forgot. Oh, rainbow. Oh, right. I need to stop uh, my plan for destroying these people. He, I want you to see here. Uh, as we examine this for the first time, the signs, the visible signs, point to the promise of God first and foremost. So there Thomas says this, the rainbow functions anthropomorphically, first of all, as a sign to God himself. God sees the rainbow and recalls his promise to Noah. Additionally, Noah himself is reassured by the rainbow of God's faithful water promise never again to impose such a catastrophic water ordeal of judgment. You probably have heard pastors, preachers talk about this bow pointing upward, right? What God is saying is if I forget, I don't know, I'll shoot myself or something like that. You have heard people talk about that. I don't know if that's exactly what is meant here. But if we are going to go that route in understanding that, then you will recognize there is a consistent pattern in covenant signs. They all point to God's own suffering. God cannot suffer, I understand. But listen to this. The bow, if really pointing upward toward heaven, if that really is what the comment, many commentators say, I took an oath now, I made a covenant with Noah and all the living creatures, and if I break it, then I will be responsible for it, and I will go through the punishment if I break this covenant. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, if the bow is pointing upward, heavenward, pointing to the guarantee of the terms by his own suffering. If I break this covenant, I will suffer. Next one, jump into Genesis 15. Remember how there's a split animal and the torch, fire torch passes through. And as you know, that's how they made covenant. And listen to this, Genesis 15 verse 17. It came about when the sun had said that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. You probably also have heard 
God alone walked in between the split animals, as if God is saying, if I do not keep my covenant, I will be the one who will be split. Because you have to guarantee the terms by pledging your own life. You break the seal, you break the promise, you will die. So bow pointing upward to himself, his own suffering. Genesis 15, the split animal, the torch, again. Now you come to baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is it simply washing our sins. Look at Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What does baptism signify? His death. And us being baptized into his death and therefore in his resurrection as well. So, you see the pattern, the bow? God guarantees it. And, oh, I will suffer the terms. Torch, Genesis 15, I pledge. I make a covenant with this man and his descendants. If I break it, I will die. Baptism is also in the extension of it, pointing to Christ's suffering, the Lord's Supper. As we have seen, what does the Lord's Supper do? It is a perpetual remembrance of his death. So, I will summarize. I want you to see today as an introduction to that baptism. From the beginning, as we examine the passages, there is a consistent pattern and a theme in God's covenant signs. That is, it's not about you, but it's about Him and His promises first. All of His signs first should point to Him and His grace, His promises, and His covenant faithfulness. Only then your personal faith and obedience to the promise, a God's covenant promise, will come in. Baptists say, baptism is a sign and seal for my presence of my faith. It's first and foremost about me. But from our perspective, that's not what the signs were designed to do from the beginning. And we see it because we recognize the continuity from the beginning to the end. That's how we see this. And then, 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus says, when he took the cup, what did he say? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the, what? New covenant in my blood. When you talk about covenants from the Old Testament, by the nature of the case, covenants are everlasting. Covenants, they do not expire with that person. That's not what covenants are as you see. So when Christ, the night before he was about to die, when he instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And if you are one of his disciples sitting next to him, what are you thinking? Because they are Jewish people. The covenant theology are kicking in in their heads. Christ is not reinventing these things but he stands in the extension of God's covenant-making process and he says, I am fulfilling all of that. All of the Old Testament covenants were pointing toward me. They were saved because they were pointing toward me, person and the work, the seed of woman, and, 
and all that profess true faith was saved. So Christ culminates all these covenants in his new covenant. God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's covenant faithfulness, God's, his, God's own suffering. And it, it makes sense now what, why Christ assumed human nature, not human person. Why did God become a man? Not to enjoy the world, but to suffer. That's the only way that God could suffer as God-man. So you see, what I want you to do, the study of covenant theology, or study of infant baptism, I hope will accomplish, among many things, this first. God-centered vision for you. There's no conflict between God's Priority and man's responsibility. There's no conflict. But what comes first? What is fundamental? What is priority in our reading of the Bible and appreciating God's plan of salvation is that it is God, God, God from the beginning to the end. The only reason we are able to remember Him is because He remembered us first. He kept his promise for us first. God gave the signs that were pointing to them first. Think about it. If you're Noah, you come out from Mount. And the the ark is parked and you come out and there's nothing, nobody. Just his family. That's how I understand that. There are no surviving families out there. Why the covenant signs? I would say this. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't have the complete Bible. God didn't have conversation every day. You look at how many times God speaks to Abraham. God does not say, hey, good morning, Abraham. Hey, what did you eat for breakfast, God? You don't have that kind of conversation. Did you have Starbucks? You don't have that. When God speaks, it is sporadic and some from time to time when important things are at stake. So when God says rainbow, bow, when Noah looks at that each and every time, it works as a reminder. Reminder for what? God's grace. God said, God will never destroy you again. It's not first and foremost about, oh, I I believe. But it points toward him and said, God, thank you. What about circumcision? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Same thing. It reminds us for his grace, his faithfulness. And may God bless all of you as we delve into this important topic called the infant baptism. Let's pray.